Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the audio recording of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. I am your reader, Dr. Christopher Magrita, and this is Volume 11, Issue Number 23, All Things Coronavirus Update Number 36. Hope that you're having a great day and that you're going to enjoy reading and learning along with me as we tackle the issues related to coronavirus over the last two weeks. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. The United States continues on a great trajectory overall. Latest numbers from Google and the CDC show that cases peaked in early January. Death numbers continue to decline on a seven-day moving average, which is great news. The United States is now past 61% of its over 18-year-old population having been vaccinated with at least one dose. The number of vaccinated and or previously infected Americans is now a very large number heading towards herd immunity possibilities. 130 million Americans are now fully vaccinated, with most being higher risk. 163 million have had at least one dose, and the vaccines continue to drastically reduce the risk of death and hospitalization. North Carolina now has 76% of its individuals over the age of 65 years fully vaccinated. It also appears that the vaccination process has stalled here. COVID continues to be a minor nuisance for almost all children. As it stands today, the United States has had 33 0.1 million cases and almost 589,000 deaths. There's still no change in the knowledge that more than 80% of deaths are skewed towards the age 55 and over group, and 94% of all deaths occurred in a person with a comorbid chronic health condition. As with the original newsletter, take solace in the fact that you have a 99 plus percent chance of survival regardless of vaccination status. However, mathematically, you now have a 99.9998% chance of survival once vaccinated, and this is great news. Now let's move on to the main thrust of this week's newsletter. We must have discourse regarding experimental vaccinations to be a moral society. For this reason, I will take on this controversial topic this week. Are we all okay with an emergency use authorization for COVID-19 vaccine for children under 16 years of age? That is a loaded question. In the British Medical Journal, we see a piece written by doctors Pegden, Prasad, and Baral this week. They state, and I quote, for adults, the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination are enormous, while for children, they're relatively minor. Rare side effects from adult COVID-19 vaccination are unlikely to lead to future vaccine hesitancy, whose public health impact could be comparable to the benefits of the adult COVID-19 vaccination program itself. But accelerated mass child vaccination under emergency youth authorization, perhaps even spurred by school mandates and vaccine passports, presents a different balance of risks and benefits. The possibility that rare adverse events could emerge as the more durable public health legacy of an emergency use authorization for child COVID-19 vaccines is much greater, end quote. A second quote from Levine et al. says this, and I quote, Young people have been largely spared from severe COVID-19 so far, and the value of childhood vaccination against respiratory viruses in general remains an open question for three reasons. The limited benefits of protection in age groups that experience only mild disease, the limited effects of transmission 
because of the range of antigenic types and waning vaccine-induced immunity and the possibility of unintended consequences related to differences in vaccine-induced and infection-induced immunity. As I've discussed in the past, vaccines do cause rare but serious side effects that take years to ferret out. An emergency use authorization for COVID-19 makes little sense to me as children have no significant increased mortality risk from COVID than they do from the annual influenza virus. EUA, emergency use authorization, is necessary under specific conditions as was met for the adult death risk. Furthermore, we do not mandate influenza vaccination despite its incredible safety. To mandate vaccination for children to go to any school, including college, while not mandating the at-risk adult individuals is like treating the adult swimming pool for stool leakage from diapers and not touching the kiddie pool. We should be treating the risk pool where it lies. This is not like mandatory measles for children, which has a high morbidity and insane reproductive rate. Our priority should be vaccinating the at-risk population, which is the adult population, and allowing children to receive the vaccine based on each person's comfort with the scientific data as it stands. Even in this situation, it may be better served for us to send out potential childhood use vaccines overseas to hotspots like India, where people are succumbing to COVID-19 in record number. Morally, this makes complete sense to me. I am pro-vaccine, but I am more pro-safety, and an EUA at this point, as pointed out, is jumping the safety gun for kids. Couple this to a much greater need for overseas use, and you have a path forward that makes sense to me. This is not to say that each individual family cannot choose to get the vaccine if and when it is made available, as the acute safety data so far is very strong. Every person must choose, as these events unfold, based on the risk of COVID in children, which is minimal, not zero, versus the theoretical risk of a long-term vaccine side effect as yet to be determined. According to the CDC, there were 654 deaths from COVID-19 in the age group of 0 to 24 years. In 2020, from 0 to 17 years of age, there were 178 COVID deaths from unvaccinated children and 179 influenza deaths in the 2021 season. Remember that the 179 deaths is from partially influenza vaccinated youth population, not a naive COVID population. This data comes from the CDC. Putting this into perspective, when measles was rampant in the United States many years ago, 500 deaths and 1,000 damaged brains occurred yearly in an unvaccinated population. This is a factor of six times worse for outcomes and coupled to robust safety data makes measles a obvious use choice. I have never seen a live case of measles in clinic in the 25 years of medicine that I have been able to practice. Thus, vaccination works for measles with no significant side effects. For a counter-argument that vaccination is necessary for children's mask removal in public, see this piece by Walmsley from NPR. Regardless of which side of this debate you find yourself on, the discourse is important while the judgment of viewpoints is not. Read the data and viewpoints over the ensuing weeks and be informed for your choice. Now on to the quick hits. Number one, poor quality messaging is eroding our confidence in the Center for Disease Control. As noted in previous newsletters and recent New York Times article, the messaging, among others, was that less than 10% of the COVID cases occur outdoors when the actual number is between 0.1% and 1%. They are misleading the public by a factor of 10 to 100. Not good for trust. From Lenart, there was a quote that states, saying that less than 10% of COVID transmission occurs outdoors is akin to saying that sharks attack fewer than 20,000 swimmers a year. The actual worldwide number is around 150. It is both true and deceiving. 
We need to demand transparency and truth from our scientific leaders and healthcare policymakers. This kind of messaging erodes the public trust, making mask mandates and vaccination requests less complied with as fear rises. They should state exact numbers and truth as known by today's data. That can change, and that is okay, as we always plan to change our behavior based on the evidence at hand and not the fear-based altered data sets. Number two, in a new Nature Medicine article, we see modeling data showing us that the human vaccine-induced neutralizing antibody titer will wane over the first 250 days after immunization, predicting some loss in protection to SARS-2 infection. However, protection against severe COVID-19 disease should be largely preserved, Corey et al. 2021. This is consistent with what we are witnessing in post-vaccination surveillance nationally from a morbidity perspective. Immunity may wane, yet morbidity and mortality remain low, even in a reinfection does happen to occur. However, so far infection post-vaccination remains rare. More time is needed to answer this type of modeling data. Number three, SARS-2 origins in the news again. This time in the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Freeman has written a piece on the origins of SARS-2, very similar to the work of Nicholas Baker in the New York Times Intelligencer back in January. This is from Freeman, 2021. Number four, the rare clotting events seen with the COVID Johnson & Johnson vaccines may be an autoimmune overreaction leading to disease called vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VITT. as a tongue twister. A group led by blood disorder specialist Dr. Greinacher has found that the preservative EDTA causes some of the proteins in the vaccine to leak into the blood and develop autoantibodies. It seems that platelet factor 4 may be targeted by the immune system for antibody production, leading to autoimmune damage in the clotting cascade, presenting clinically a serious venous clots in the brain, lungs, or other tissue. This was in Penchevsky et al. and Greinacher et al., 2021. Because these events are exceedingly rare, it is highly likely that certain women have a genetic risk for autoimmune activation following exposure to the preservative EDTA in conjunction with the vaccine-related proteins. A rare but very bad event ensues that is deadly in a large percentage of infected individuals. This again begs the question of vaccinated young individuals with low COVID risk who could develop a serious vaccine reaction to one of the adenoviral vector vaccines. Number five, sometimes human noncompliance or a needed reason to delay a second vaccine falls into the land of serendipity. Such is the case with new data from the journal Nature regarding the Pfizer vaccine effectiveness and dose timing. Quote, to determine whether the delay paid off, a group and colleagues studied 175 vaccine recipients older than 80 who received their second dose of the Pfizer vaccine either three weeks or 11 to 12 weeks after the first dose. The team measured recipients' levels of antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and assessed how immune cells called T-cells, which can help to maintain antibody levels over time, responded to vaccination. Peak antibody levels were 3.5 times higher in those who waited 12 weeks for their booster shot than were those in people who waited only three weeks. Peak T-cells was lower in those with the extended interval. But this did not cause antibody levels to decline more quickly over the nine weeks after the booster shot. This was from Ledford et al., 2021. To me, this data set, yet again, gives us pause to continue to iterate our trials and knowledge on the most effective route to long-term vaccine-induced immunity for the at-risk populations. Number six, researchers from Stanford University looked at a nine-month period last year from May of 2020 to February of 2021 this year during the pandemic to analyze the truth of pediatric COVID disease and found a surprising overshoot diagnosis rate 
by 45%, meaning that a full 45% of the defined COVID cases were not actually caused by COVID. This was from Kushner et al., 2021. The demographics of the 117 patients in the study included a 50-50 split of male to female. 71% of the patients were Hispanic, 11% Caucasian, 9% Asian, and 2% African American. There was also 16% immunocompromised status. It is important for us to understand that this disease is very, very mild in children. To keep it all in perspective, 178 children died from coronavirus last year between 0 and 17 years of age, of which 20% had a known underlying medical condition. In 2018, 4,074 children under the age of 19 died in a motor vehicle accident, and 3,143 children died from firearm exposure. This is from Cunningham et al. 2018. Driving in a car or owning a gun or firearm is 20 times more dangerous than being unvaccinated against SARS-2 as a child or adolescent. Bottom line to all the quick hits and all the data discussed so far is just keep reading, keep thinking before making any decisions regarding coronavirus, coronavirus vaccination, your lifestyle choices, and health in general. Remember from earlier newsletters, the most important thing you can do to prevent yourself from ever succumbing to any significant viral or bacterial pathogen is to maintain a strong immune host defense. That is predicated on you making really good choices around sleeping, around eating healthy, specifically in an anti-inflammatory or Mediterranean diet style. Make sure you exercise or move daily. That can be as simple as walking miles, jogging, running, lifting weights. Also avoiding chemical exposure for those things that could potentially put a strain on your immune system. And very importantly, stress. Work hard to mitigate stress in your life mentally. It is important that we all learn to pray, meditate, have laughter, friendships, and all the things that keep us in a stress-balanced state. Hyper-stress, really damaging to the immune system. So focus on those things this week as you read and listen to further data coming in the news waves and news wires over the coming weeks. As always, be well, be kind, enjoy life, and learn as much as you can every day while we have the ability to breathe the beautiful air of this country. Signing off, this is Dr. Magrida, and I hope you all have a blessed day.